You know, every church coming through COVID, we, we all had many similar experiences. Uh, each church, of course, would have been slightly unique in this. We, like many churches, have experienced the changes that came with COVID. We saw people leave at one point because we were wearing masks, and we saw people leave at another point because we weren't. Uh, we had people come to us because they didn't like whatever their church was doing, you know, with COVID, but I guess they liked what we were doing with it better. Uh, we saw new families come to Deer Creek Church in this last year and a half, two years. Some 35 new families have joined us. We're very, very thankful. Many of those are from out of the area. They moved here. We just celebrate that. That's a gift from God when families decide to become a part of this family. Uh, we've had a lot of staff changes in the past year. Uh, new children's director, Amber Brinks, we're just delighted. And in that, uh, Hannah Nealon is the new children's coordinator. We've got some new youth assistants, Reed Wilking. Uh, some of you know Reed. Uh, you may have ministered to him in years past. Uh, he grew up in this church. Uh, he is now uh, one of our youth assistants. Jackie Ellis is another. We're excited about those changes. We're really anticipating some good things with our student ministry. But all of this is just to say that we are a church, not unique, but we are a church that's experiencing a lot of change. There's even a rumor uh, out there that someone who's been on the staff for like 35 years, literally forever, right from the beginning, is going to be let go in December. We'll see if that happens. Um, and uh, something I need to mention along those lines, September the 11th is something you need to mark on your calendar. Uh, if you want to be a, a part of some really important things happening in the life of our church, we're going to have a congregational meeting on September the 11th. It'll be at 4.30 right here in this room. And at that meeting, we're going to uh, ordain and install some new officers, both elders and deacons. Uh, we are going to be installing Chad Donahoe, who was up here just a minute ago, uh, onto the staff as a pastor here at Deer Creek, formally and officially. Uh, we will also be voting on whether Daniel becomes the lead teaching pastor here at Deer Creek. I haven't made up my mind yet, I, you know, but I, I'll, I'll know by September 11th what I'm going to vote. Uh, but you want to be here to vote for that. That's a big moment of celebration, a moment that's been long in coming, years in process. So anyway, that's September the 11th. But all of that is to say a great deal of change is happening here at Deer Creek. But in the midst of all this change, I am really blessed and really pleased to say that as a church, and I say this sincerely, I think very honestly, we are flourishing. God is working. Good things are happening. We've added over 50 new members in the last year. And we have 83 people right now praying about and considering whether or not to lead a small group in this next semester. 83. Now, that doesn't mean we'll have, end up, Having 83, I think actually right now we probably have locked in 60 plus groups, which is the most groups I think we've ever had. And we may have more than that. And that's just something to celebrate because we view small groups as a primary way that we make disciples. That happens through you, small group leaders, and through you speaking into each other's lives. Small groups are vitally, vitally important to us. We're excited about that. Uh, we have a new church planting family that is going to be joining us. You haven't formally met them yet. They're the Rapp family. This is David and Jennifer Rapp and their three kids, Wyatt, Darby, and Stella. Uh, we have the Watson family. You know JP, Carrie Ann, and the kids. Uh, they're going to be launching in a year another church. Why do we put so much emphasis on church planting? Well, because it is the way. The best way to see people come to faith in Jesus and make them 
disciples, followers of Jesus. And this, is, we believe, is what God has called us to do. I don't know if you noticed on that little sheet or not, but we give 20% of what we receive in a given year away to missions and benevolence. Why would you do that? Well, we would do that because we believe that helps us fulfill, fulfill the mission that God has called us to. That's what the Raps are about. That's what the Watsons are about. That's what we are committed to. We, we have a great deal as a church for which to be thankful. So when I was asked to consider preaching for the month of August, I'm way out of practice. You can tell that. Uh, when I was asked to consider preaching for the month of August, that's why I decided to preach on money. Money and trust. Why? Why would you do that? Well, one thing I want you to know, it's not because we need it. It's not because we're in a bad place financially. It's not because uh, you aren't giving sacrificially. That's, that's not why. We're actually in a good place. The reason why is just that it's such an incredibly important subject. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you do not get to not think about this important subject. You know, when we go to school, we're told that we're doing it in order to later on earn money. Then practically the rest of our lives, we spend 40 to 60 hours a week working for it, working for money. We invest countless hours in thought and discussion, deciding how we are going to handle our money. We go to stores, we surf the net, trying to figure out ways to spend it. Where are we going to spend our money? We're caught up more than probably we would like to admit, worrying whether we're going to have enough money. We dream and scheme of ways to acquire more of it, this thing called money. Uh, we have these wild imagination of buying a lottery ticket and suddenly hitting it rich, and then everything will be good if that happens, right? Counselors tell us that arguments over money are among the leading causes of marital problems. People despair over losing money. The love of it causes many of our society's crimes, the, the love of money. It's been called the root of all evil. It's been called the source of great good. And one thing we can probably all agree on is we cannot afford to ignore the reality and the importance of money, how we handle it, what we do with it, if we, if we want to follow Jesus. And so I thought we should talk about it. Try to get a, a solid biblical perspective and understanding of this thing called money. It's been a long time since we've done it. I went back to look. The last time I preached a series on money was February 2015. Been a long time. I can't remember what my last sermon was, so I'm sure you forgot everything I said about that back in February 2015. So let me just say at the outset here, that if you are a Christ follower, and if you want to, to follow Jesus well, then one of the things you simply have to think about, one of the things you simply have to wrestle with is your attitude, your perspective, your practices around this thing called money, wealth, your possessions. Now, if you're not a Christ follower, you might uh, be tempted to think that, well, there's nothing in this message for you, after all, you're not sure where you even stand. You're not sure whether you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God himself. So why would his teaching about money and possessions matter a whit to you? Well, here's the thing. 
Interestingly enough, the passage that we're going to look at here in just a moment, it has a context. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, and if you've got a Bible, you can turn there because we're going to be reading a passage out of Luke 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 1 says this, that many thousands of people had gathered together. This is to hear Jesus. And what does Jesus do with these many thousands of people that have come to hear him? Well, he decides to speak to his disciples, it says. It's like Jesus wants the crowds to hear what he's going to say to his disciples. He knows that he is surrounded by people, some of whom believe he's the Messiah, some of whom believe he is the unique son of God, but many don't know what they believe. And here in this passage, he deliberately chooses to talk about attitudes towards money and possessions and stuff. And so he talks to his disciples knowing that others are listening. So there must be something he wants even non-followers to hear about this subject and to figure out. So we're going to look at what Jesus says to his disciples, to his followers about money and possessions. And believe me, it's very challenging. It is very, very challenging. Not at all because Jesus wants our money or requests our money, but because, in fact, Jesus wants much more. And so here we go. Luke chapter 12. We're going to start reading in verse 13. It's the parable of the rich fool. Uh, Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully, And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's an interesting little story, interesting little episode in the life and the ministry of Jesus. There's uh, several things going on here, many things actually. Three of them we're going to talk about. There's a request that's made to Jesus, and then there's a refusal to answer that request. And then there is a rebuke actually given in the form of a story that Jesus tells. And and when you ask why, why why is there a request and why is there a refusal and why the rebuke? Well, some interesting things come to the surface. Things I think that will challenge us and help us have a biblical perspective on this subject of money. So first, let's talk about the request. The request, this, this man, this individual comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Why, why does this man make this request of Jesus? Well, it appears that this man's parents had died and his brother was in possession of the inheritance left from them. And his brother uh, was not dividing up the inheritance fairly or perhaps even at all. And so he's asking Jesus, would you be the judge, the arbiter here? Would you help me settle this matter? And again, why would this man want Jesus to get involved in a matter such as this? Well, we need to understand that Jesus, of course, is a teacher. 
He's a rabbi, an itinerant rabbi. And at this time and at this place in history, it was common practice for a rabbi or a teacher of the law to be consulted on legal and moral matters, always. In addition, as it turns out, money was one of the things that Jesus talked about all the time. In addition, uh, Jesus would uh, talk about justice and mercy. He would talk about caring for the poor, always in light of how we use our assets, what we do with the things we have. Wealth and possessions were things that just came up all the time in Jesus' teaching. Uh, you can, just as an example, uh, if you take the Gospel of Luke alone in Luke chapter 12, it's mostly about money. Luke chapter 11, mostly about money. Luke chapter 16, mostly about money. Go all the way back to Luke chapter 3, verse 10, when John the Baptist is preaching, telling people to repent, uh, and the people are, respond, and they say to, to uh, John the Baptist, what then shall we do? In other words, how do we repent? What, what are you actually asking us to do? What do we do to show that we are repenting? And uh, John responds this way in Luke chapter 3, verse 11. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. John goes right to the heart of the issue of generosity and the use of the things that we have that have been given to us by God. John tells tax collectors in that same passage when they ask the question, you know, what do we do? How do we repent? He says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Don't be greedy. Don't steal. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. It's a money matter. When the soldiers ask the same question, what do we do? How do we repent? He says, don't extort money and be content with your pay. It's interesting how often John the Baptist goes to this subject of money. When the Pharisees are being denounced in Luke chapter 16, it's kind of interesting. One of the ways that they are described by Jesus is that they are lovers of money. Verse 14. In Luke 19, when Zacchaeus' life is completely transformed, remember Zacchaeus, short Zacchaeus, he meets Jesus and he has an encounter with Jesus. And in Luke 19, he comes to Jesus and what does he do? Well, he gives away, it says, half of his wealth. Half, he was a wealthy man, he gave away half of his wealth. In Luke 11, Jesus affirms the tithe as a, just a standard principle in giving. That's giving a tenth of one's income. The point is all this. Jesus and the Gospels are continually talking about money and possessions. Eleven. Eleven of the 39 parables that we have in the New Testament are about our use of money. Why do you suppose this is? Well, I think it's accurate to say that giving or generosity is not just another thing Christians are supposed to do. Uh, there are many things we are supposed to do, many good things, but the, generosity and giving are not just another thing we're supposed to do. In fact, generosity and giving, I would say, are at the heart of everything a Christian is, as well as everything a Christian does. Let me show you what I mean. Three great Christian virtues Faith and hope and love. Paul talks about these in 1 Corinthians 13. A, a Christian is supposed to be, a, a Christ follower is supposed to be growing in these three areas, faith and hope and love. It's what discipleship is all about. Well, question, can you grow in faith? Can you grow in hope? Can you grow in love if you do not live generously? If you do not give, if you are not generous with your resources, your time, your skills and abilities, as well as your money, your stuff. Let me ask it this way. Why don't more Christians give more 
generously. I, honestly, I'm grieved by the recent statistics on this. Somewhere between 3 to 5% of people who call themselves Christians actually practice anything close to a tithe. That's sad. What that shows is a huge lack of understanding and even appreciation. Uh, one reason, I think, is we lack faith. We're scared. We wonder whether God will take care of us if we give some of our stuff away, right? You see, it's not just a lack of generosity. It's actually a lack of faith, faith in God, trusting God. Another reason we lack generosity, our, uh, we, we find it hard to give, I think, is a misplaced hope. What is hope? Hope is uh, what I'm trusting in, right? Hope is what I give my, my, get my value from. What I put my hope in is what, to a very large extent, tends to define me, characterize me. If I hope in my money or if I hope in my power or if I hope in some position that I have, well, that's what largely defines me and shapes me and molds me. If I hope in God, what he says, what he does, what he calls me to do, well, that's what will largely then define me. That's what will guide my behavior, you see. So if my God says, be like me, be generous, that's what I'll do because my hope is not in money. It's not in my stuff. It's in him, you see. Uh, take the other virtue, take love, for example. Again, why do we struggle being generous with our resources? One of the reasons is because we lack, we lack love. We lack uh, sensitivity and sympathy to the very serious needs of other people. And I've said this, so I'm pretty sure you probably say it too. I look around me and I see so much need. There are times when I'm like, yeah, there's no, I can't. Nothing I can do can actually address the need. I mean, nothing, literally nothing. So I'm better off just taking care of me. And we tend to often think along those lines. And the point is, giving and generosity are not just another thing that Christians need to do, not just another duty. Giving and generosity are at the very heart, I think, of everything that a Christian really is and what a Christian does. Giving and generosity make it clear that our faith is real. Giving is a reality check on all of the Christian virtues. Uh, giving is not just an idea or a concept. It's very concrete, isn't it? When you take some of your stuff and you give it to someone else, it's an activity. I either do it or I don't. And giving money and stuff away, showing generosity goes way beyond lip service. I mean, you can say I hope in God. A lot of people do, of course. But, but if you want it to be more than just a sentiment, well, then you give. You live generously. And that will demonstrate that you are hoping in God to take care of you, to sustain you, to provide for you. You think, you know, loving your neighbor sounds like a good idea. Well, if you want it to be more than just a tender sentiment, then you have to be generous toward your neighbors, the people God puts around you, with your stuff, with your time and your abilities, you know, and as well as with your money when it's needed. If you think... Uh, Seeking first uh, the kingdom sounds like a good idea. You know, advancing God's kingdom so that others come to know Jesus. If, if you want that to be more than just a, a religious sentiment, then you have to put your money into kingdom kinds of things. I mean, I'm sorry I'm saying this, but I'm saying it to me as well as to you. This is just the reality of being a disciple. As I said earlier, no pass on this. You see, for, for a Christian, 
Things like faith and hope and love are all actually evidenced through their generosity and through their giving. It just is. To call yourself a Christian and not be generous, to not give, is a very big contradiction. And that's the sad truth about all of us. We, we're all pretty contradictory at times. But I, as a pastor, and I, as a follower of Jesus, want to be less contradictory. I want you to be less contradictory, and that's why we're studying this subject. Are you with me so far? Yes. Who wants to leave? <laughs> okay. Who needs to confess the sin of lying? Yeah. So, you know, Jesus was crystal clear about this. Uh, so were Jesus' early followers. You, you read the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 4 through 6, are interesting chapters because they describe the early church and early Christians and how they were doing life together, you know. And what you will find there if you read those chapters is that because Christians gave their money away in astonishing ways, sacrificial ways, what that did is it showed the world that something had really happened to these people. They were living differently than everybody else. They were caring for each other's needs. It was, it was pretty dramatic. They were different. So if you say, you know, wow, I put my faith in God and everything is different now, a careful observer might say, well, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll watch and we'll see. And what they were doing with their stuff and their money made it clear, no, something really had happened. And when the world sees Christians, when the world sees you and sees me sacrificially giving our time, our talent, and our stuff and our money away in ways that nobody else does in our culture, that is undeniable evidence that something has happened inside us. Something really is different. And that difference, of course, is Jesus. Someone said one time, I don't, I don't know who this quote, to, who to attribute it to, the reality of God's generosity to us will never impact the world until the world sees our generosity to others. It's a pretty good observation. Here's the big point. Giving isn't just another duty for a Christian, right? Giving and generosity are at the heart of everything a Christian is because we've been a recipient of generosity, a recipient of giving, and everything a Christian does. Because that looks like the one who's been generous to us. You can't worship God. You can't love people. You can't change the world without a radical commitment to giving. A lack of giving isn't just being stingy. It's not just being greedy. It's a lack of giving on the part of a Christian. It's actually a lack of faith and hope and love. And the way to build faith and hope and love is through this tool of giving. It really is. Jesus knew this. That's why he challenges us with these, this subject, this matter. Uh, that's why he challenges us the way he does in this area. Until we are so deeply affected by Jesus, who he is and what he's done for, this, done for us, that we treat our money and our stuff differently than other people do, it's probably in doubt whether we've been deeply affected by Jesus. Now, this man in our story that we read asked Jesus this question, hoping that since this rabbi talks so much about money, maybe he'd be especially good at getting his brother to do what he was sure his brother ought to do, and that was be fair with the inheritance, right? Now, this guy is very much, uh, he's a lot like you and a lot like me. He's actually listening to Jesus teach. He's listening to a sermon, right? And the whole time as he's listening, he's thinking, oh, man, I wish my brother was here. My brother needs to hear this message. And we kind of do that too. So he brings this money request to Jesus. And then Jesus does something that actually surprises me. And that is he refuses to help. He says, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? That's what he tells this guy. 
And what's odd here is that Jesus claimed on many uh, other occasions to be exactly that, to be a judge. So it's kind of interesting the posture he takes in this specific circumstance. Jesus had made it clear elsewhere that judgment would happen, and it would happen when he comes back, right? When he comes back, all the nations and all the peoples will be divided up and judged. Some will be sheep and some will be goats. Jesus had made this very clear. So why here does Jesus say, man who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And so I'll take my best shot at this at explaining what I think is going on. What I think Jesus is saying here is that judging the inheritance issue between you and your brother, it's not my mission. It's not at least until you have understood who I really am and why I have really come. It's not, it's not my mission. You see, this man thought at that particular moment that his big issue was this matter of the inheritance. If he could just get his brother to settle the inheritance, if he could just get his fair share, you see, if he could just make more money, if he could just win the lottery, life would be so on track for him. Life would be so incredibly good. But Jesus sees much more deeply into this man's soul than he himself sees, or you and I can see. Jesus sees this man putting his faith and his hope and his trust for his future in the idea of this inheritance. That's what's going to take care of him. And Jesus knew that this inheritance could never give this man what he really needed, spiritually, relationally, in terms of personal security or purpose, or in terms of his eternity. And so Jesus was not going to help this man get his idol, you see. He was not going to help him get something that he thought he had to have to be happy. Jesus instead was going to challenge this man about his whole way of looking at life. That's what Jesus is doing, I'm pretty sure. And I want you to see something. Just before Jesus and this man started talking, Jesus had made some enormous claims. I mean, as he was wont to do, actually. In verse 8 and 9, Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men... The Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This is remarkable. Jesus is claiming some type of inside relationship with Almighty God and the angels who serve Almighty God and worship Almighty God. You acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you. You don't acknowledge me, I won't acknowledge you. Before Almighty God. Whoa, that's pretty bold. Uh, Jesus is saying, hey, people, I am the guy. I mean, I, I am the Messiah. I am the unique Son of God. You want to know God? You want to live in His kingdom? You have got to know me and acknowledge me, listen to me, follow me before men. And this is an incredible claim to make, admittedly. But Jesus claims, they don't stop there. There are other places where Jesus claims to be the creator. He claims to be the sustainer of the universe. He claims to be God's son. He claims to be God himself. I and the Father are one. He claims to be the Jewish Messiah. He claims to be the Savior of the world. Jesus was always making these enormous claims. And as such, he was always, honestly, dividing people. 
In fact, that's even why he said he came. Here in Luke chapter 12, verse 49, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Not make a little campfire so everybody could get around it and be cozy. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. He's talking about his crucifixion. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus was always saying things and in light of what he said, asking people to decide, asking them to make a choice, either follow me, listen to me, obey me, or don't. Either believe in me or don't. And either way, Jesus was not someone you could treat casually or dismissively. And the same is true today, friends. It's no different. A person who makes the kinds of claims that Jesus made, you either have to fall to the ground and say, you are God. Command me. Or you walk away in unbelief. I don't know, disgust, hatred, rejection. There's not really a comfortable middle ground. Not really. And what I want us to see is that Jesus, what he's saying to this man is that you have bigger issues to decide in your life than this matter of your inheritance. And you need to understand that. You see, I have not been appointed to settle this matter for you. My mission is much bigger than this matter of your inheritance. Your needs are much greater than this matter of the inheritance. And Jesus tells us really what his mission was. He says this in verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We don't believe that. That's just one of those many places where Jesus says something and it's like, yeah, I don't believe that. I mean, I believe my life does consist in the abundance of my possessions. That's my future security right there, man. But Jesus is trying to get us to think. Jesus is trying to straighten out this man's thinking with whom he's interacting. Jesus' mission is to teach us and show us what a man's life really consists of. What life is really about. What's really the point of living. This man needs to know who Jesus is. This man had come to Jesus believing, like so many of us, that that if he could just get his hands on his rightful share of that inheritance, he'd be happy. His future would be secure. He'd be where he needs to be. Life, his life would be so good. And so he comes to Jesus maybe believing that, you know, Jesus, he's a heck of a teacher. There aren't many rabbis who can teach like this guy. He's even done some miracles. I don't know what all he could do, but he's pretty darn incredible. He might even be the son of God, but not necessarily believing that Jesus was all he needed. He hadn't gotten to that point yet. But that's the truth. That's the truth for all of us. And so Jesus does for this man what he also wants to do for us. He exposes his false faith and hope And love, he says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You are putting your hope and your trust in something that cannot and will not satisfy your spirit. 
And what is more, you are trying to use me to get what you think you need to be happy. And that right there, ouch, wow. That right there, I'm ashamed to say, is what uh, some very large percentage of North American Christianity is about. Maybe if I follow Jesus, I'll prosper. Maybe if I follow Jesus, my life will get better. Maybe if I follow Jesus, God will reward me by getting my brother to settle the inheritance with me. Because that's what I really think I need and what I really want. I think that's really what's going on in this story. And that's exactly what goes on much of the time, I'm ashamed to say, in my life, and I'm guessing in yours. You know, trying to get God, use God to get us what I think I really need or want. We want to use Jesus like a good luck charm, right? But Jesus' mission is to help us see what we really worship, what we really put our faith in, what we really want and put our hope in, what we are really after. That is what we really love. And he wants to expose our idols, our little gods, which are just too little. He wants to deliver us from them and call us to something much bigger, much better, which is, of course, him. You see, Jesus did not come to get us things that we think we need to be happy to experience real life. He came to be our life. And that messes everything up when it comes to our plans, doesn't it? Because if we're really honest, we are much like this man in our story, tempted to use Jesus or at least try to get things we really want. We say, well, you know, Jesus seems like a very wise person. He may actually be the son of God. Maybe his death on the cross was really important. Maybe he can straighten out my marriage, my kids, my situation, my finances. But here's the problem. Jesus didn't come to change our luck. And he didn't come to advance our own personal agendas, whatever they are. He came to critique and to refashion our agendas. He didn't come to fix this man's inheritance problem. He came to be this man's inheritance. And when and if that happens, then the inheritance problem becomes infinitely less significant, you see, in this man's life. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't wrong for this guy to care about the inheritance issue. That wasn't wrong. It's just that this issue is not nearly as big or important as he thinks it is. And when he understands that Jesus, the one and only unique Son of God, has died for him and given him everlasting life, that this Jesus will never, ever forsake him. We'll come to live inside him. We'll continue to guide him day in, day out. Provide for him, empower him, give him purpose. When he understands that Jesus loves him, then no matter what happens with the inheritance problem, you see, his life won't be controlled by that. He might even be able to forgive his brother if he never gets a penny of the inheritance. What a testimony that would be of the power and the grace of God to forgive someone who has so wronged you. Jesus wants us all to see that if we put our trust in anything other than him, our lives will not be what they should be. They will be less than God intends or wants them to be. They will be hollow. They will be empty because one day we will be deeply, deeply disappointed by whatever it is we're trusting in. 
Jesus said, I'm not appointed to get you all the things you think you need to be happy. I'm appointed to change your way of thinking, to transform you, to make you after my image. I have come so that you can know me and in knowing me be set free and have real, real life. Life that doesn't end in this, in this life but goes right on into eternity. And that, I think, is the point of Jesus' rebuke. There's been a request, there's been a refusal, and then Jesus tells a parable where, where God offers a pretty strong rebuke. In verse 20, God says to the man in the parable, this is, there's this man, he's, he's building bigger and bigger barns, you know, he's, he's had some real prosperous years, and he's got lots of stuff. He's got more stuff than he can even fit in his barn. So uh, he, he builds bigger and bigger barns, and then that evening, God comes to him and says, fool. Fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? They won't be yours. You're a fool. A fool in the Bible is always someone who's not thinking or living according to reality, according to the way things actually really are. A fool in this world uh, uh, is, is, is just somebody who makes up their own reality. The Bible says, uh, this is Psalm uh, 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, guess what? Regardless if that's what you say, there is a God before whom you will stand and give an account one day. That's what the Bible says is reality, reality for all of us. Nobody gets a pass on this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The man in Jesus' parable became a fool because of what he put his faith and his hope and his trust in, which was money. It was stuff. And he was going to get as much of it as he could. And this man lived as if this life and his stuff was all there is. And Jesus is saying to him through this parable, he's saying this to you, he's saying this to me, that that is just not true. That's a foolish way to live. That's what he means in verse 21. So, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That person's a fool. You see, there is a God. That's reality. We can either be rich toward him or not. To be rich toward God isn't just saying, oh, I, I have faith in God. I have hope in God. I love God. No, it's demonstrating that those are true things by how I use the stuff in my barn. How I use my time how I use my talent and ability, and how I use my treasure. Jesus says, invest that stuff in things that matter and last, things like people, things like God's kingdom. You know, when we invest those kinds of things, we become rich toward God, we are told. Jesus says, demonstrate your faith and your hope and your love by emptying a barn now and then. And friends, here's the deal. The kingdom Jesus is building is uh, again and again exactly the opposite of the kingdoms that we live in, of the kingdoms we try to build, our own little kingdoms. Exactly the opposite. The world we live in tells us, you know what, you better look out for yourself. Number one, you better promote your own glory. You better hold on to your power, your position, your stuff. Your stuff is your stuff, nobody else's. You're, you're better just to hang on to it, hoard it, and get more of it. You better store it up. But Jesus says this in many different ways over and over and over. If anyone wants to, to really find himself, what does he need to do? He has to lose himself for Jesus' sake. 
contradicts the way the world works. Jesus said, if anyone wants real honor, wants to be first, he must humble himself and become a servant of others. Contradicts the way our world functions and works. If anyone wants to be truly righteous, he must confess his sin, be forgiven, and receive the righteousness that Jesus alone can give. If anyone wants to be the greatest of all, then you must become the least, the servant of all. And there's just no way around this. Jesus says the way to real riches is to give and empty your barns, not store it all up for yourself. And I know that some of us here this morning are uncomfortable with me, and uh, maybe you haven't even heard me preach because you're kind of new, and you're thinking, man, I'm glad he's going. (laughs) Can't wait for him to get out of here. (laughs) I get that. (laughs) And you're uncomfortable with me talking about wealth and possessions and generosity. I get that. But I would point out, boy, Jesus talked about it. I get why you feel that way, too, if that's the way you feel, because we all tend to be fools, frankly, about this subject. I mean, we know better, right? We, but we choose to be selective listeners and to ignore what Jesus says on this subject. But fair warning, ignoring Jesus is foolish in any area of your life. And wherever you choose to ignore him, you'll pay a price for that, really. Now, Jesus demonstrates the truth of what he taught. He didn't just teach it. He demonstrated this. He he came to earth. He emptied himself. I mean, who more than Jesus has surrendered his glory? He came from up there to down here. Uh, He surrendered his honor. He set aside all his riches. He surrenders his body and his blood to give it all away for you and for me. When he went to the cross, how did he win? Well, he won by losing. He was filled by being emptied. He received glory by being humiliated. He overcame death by dying. He got by giving. The world looks at Jesus and just thinks he's a fool, as well as his followers. This is what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the church in Corinth, a very wealthy community um, by comparison to other communities. Paul said this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Friends, this is how the gospel works, right? If you come to Jesus and you say, I'm full, I got everything a man could possibly want. My future is secure. Everything is great. Jesus would say, no. You don't get it. You're empty. You're more empty than you know. If you come to Jesus and you say, I'm, I'm, I'm empty. I am empty. Jesus would say, well, let me fill you. If you come to Jesus and say, I have nothing. I am meritless. I can't bring anything to you, Jesus. Jesus will say, well, then let me give you my merit. I can give you all the merit you need. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul wrote these words. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We're rich, friends. If we walk with Jesus, if we know Jesus, we are rich beyond our wildest dreams, rich in ways that will matter and that will continue right on in to eternity. Friends, let's be a truly, truly rich people. Let's live 
out of the truth and the reality that we are rich. Let's value Jesus above all else. Let's be like him. Let's be generous people, even unto death. Charles Spurgeon said this. He had a way with words. One of the greatest preachers probably ever lived. He said, the way you know that Jesus Christ is precious to you is that nothing else is. You're willing to give up anything and everything for the sake of knowing and following Jesus. Everything else is actually expendable because of the value of Jesus. We've been given a meal. One of the really cool things about this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, is it's an opportunity to acknowledge, to admit that, that Jesus isn't the most precious thing to us, not like he should be. And we can openly confess that and lay that before him. And, and this meal reminds us that he died to forgive us for that fact, that we're not who we should be, not loving him and following him the way we should, not having the priorities that we should have, not generous the way he wants us to be generous. Jesus, that's the truth about us. We confess it. We need your forgiveness. This table reminds us that we have that forgiveness. In the upper room with the disciples, Jesus took the bread and broke it, and he said, this bread is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in that same room, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. You see... The gospel is an acknowledgement that we are way, way worse than we even know, right? But we are way more loved than we can imagine, way more forgiven than we could possibly imagine. So we invite you, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you are following him, lay your sins before him, he will forgive you your sin. That's what repentance is all about. Here are my sins, Jesus. Would you forgive me? And receive that forgiveness and then know that you come to this table as a fully righteous person because you have his righteousness. He was generous for you as well as to you. So if you know Jesus Christ, have faith in him and follow him, we welcome you to this table. Uh, if you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, well then put your faith in him. And then come and feast in this sacrament that represents his work on the cross, his death, his shed blood. We remember his resurrection. He didn't stay dead. There's life in him and life through his life. Um, if, if that's not where you are this morning, then we would just encourage you, just, uh, you know, abstain. This is, this is a meal for those who follow Jesus. Parents, if you've got young people, children in here, you need to know where they are in terms of their faith too before they partake. Uh, you might want to use this as a teaching opportunity with them if, if that's appropriate. So pray with me as we set these things apart for their special purpose. Uh, Father, we, we thank you so much for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for his body, which is spiritual sustenance, spiritual life to us. We thank you for your blood, Jesus, which is shed on our behalf so that our blood would not need to be shed. We thank you, Father, that you meet us in this sacrament. You give us grace, nourishment, strength, 
and we are thankful. So would you feed us now? We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.